I got some gripes, some peeves. I'm peevish. Some complaints that I'm going to voice to you now. A spleen will be vented. A soapbox dragged into the park so that I might preach. My microphone is a bullhorn down with the things I will mention. I feel like an AM talk radio host. I feel like this is conflict-based AM talk radio. It's not. It's depression mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Okay, some of my gripes. Joan Cusack. Joan Cusack should get a lot more and better parts in movies. The band Pernice Brothers should be ten times more popular than they are. And I'm not going to go into detail on those gripes. My gripe today has to do with therapy. Has to do with examining one's past through therapy. Your childhood. What happened to you in that childhood. The complaint made by knuckleheads is that such a process is tantamount to living in the past, that you need to let all of that stuff go, that it's about blaming people, that one should simply get over it. Now, there are three reasons why this line of thinking bothers me, and I will list them. You may take notes if you wish. First of all, this perspective is often argued dismissively, contemptuously, as if the people trying to figure out their lives are not smart, that they're not self-reliant, that they're weak, that they just haven't thought of the thing that one is suggesting. And that's a disingenuous way to make your point. And it's rude. And stop it. Second reason this line of reasoning irks me so much, it traffics in denial. One cannot disregard the way one's mind was built. Yes, we were all blobby little babies at one point, but then people taught us things, taught us how to have relationships, how to handle situations, how to conduct oneself in the world. In some cases, who are the good people and who are the bad people? Those things were modeled for us, they were drilled into our heads in childhood, and we followed those models, and that's what made us. One can't simply get over the past any more than they can get over having arms or ribs or a liver. It's how you got built. Third and final reason this bugs me, this idea that one should and can forget about the past, is that it mischaracterizes the reason to go through therapy or even just a therapeutic assessment of how one's worldview is constructed. It's not about living in the past. It's not about blaming anyone. It's not about holding on to things. It's about knowing how where you have been informs where you are and where you're going. It's not about the past. It's about getting a clear-eyed idea of what the past actually was, what happened there, in order to navigate the present and the future. Now, you, me, and Jackie Cation, our guest this week, were formed by our childhoods. And if you weren't, you're wrong. You were. It's like you're a car. Therapy, self-examination, that's driving lessons. It's knowing where everything is so you can operate that car safely and efficiently and keep it in good repair and have as pleasant a drive as possible. Jackie is a veteran stand-up comedian, 35 years in the business. She's been on Two Dope Queens on HBO. She's had a special on Comedy Central. Her comedy albums have 10 million listens on Spotify and Pandora. And importantly, she is beloved by every comic who talks about her. Everyone loves Jackie Cation. 
Jackie has two podcasts, The Dork Forest, where people talk about what they love to do and collect, and The Jackie and Lori Show with fellow comedian Lori Kilmartin right here on the Maximum Fun Network. I think Jackie's from the Milwaukee area, right? I grew up in a little factory town south of Milwaukee, between Milwaukee and uh, Racine, in between okay. Milwaukee and Chicago. So really drinking and red meat are like, oh, that's the law uh, there. That's right. <laughs> I used to do a joke that I was weaned on Pabst and Ho-Ho's uh, because I was. <laughs> so there was a great deal of processed foods and uh, a fair amount of, you want a sip of your mom's beer? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I go do ahead. indeed. Yeah. Yeah, my my kids have grown up in, in St. Paul with the understanding that when we want to get the truly dangerous fireworks that could blow our fingers off, that's when we drive over to, to Hudson, Wisconsin. Just, you know, 20 yep. miles down the road, that's where. And you could see yep. a, a line on 4th of July, a line of cars snaking down 94 towards the nearest. Back towards the state line. Yeah. And uh, you're just like... Yeah, Wisconsin, it's hit and miss. You know, there's so many good things historically about Wisconsin. And and what I've always loved about Wisconsin is sort of, it's it's very, I've always thought of it as sort of the New York of, of in, in attitude-wise, where people are nice until you're mean, and then they're mean back to you. Right. As opposed to Minnesota, which is more <laughs> sort of like Los Angeles, where people are nice even when you're mean, and then they badmouth you when you're gone. Yeah, then they'll spend 20 years trying to destroy your entire life behind your back. Because <laughs> I lived most of the 90s in Minneapolis. Oh, okay. And uh, I have three siblings who live in the Twin Cities. So, and uh, But we, and then my one of my brothers lives outside of Milwaukee, and one of my dad moved from our small town in South Milwaukee to West Milwaukee, which is, uh, you know, a, just a, another sort of part of Milwaukee. Just, I think, I feel like it's its own town as well. Weird. Anyway. Can't, anyway, can't know. So, uh, in watching a lot of your clips and a lot watching interviews and stuff, two things struck me. One that uh, you are very adept at talking about your complicated upbringing and the people involved with it, the people coming and going uh, within it, and two, it just makes me wonder the effect that that had on you. That you know all those. I mean, I'll call it trauma, the, the, the complex trauma that often goes with childhood and with, uh, with substances. Let's get a, a rundown, if, if we can, on uh, kind of your early life uh, as it pertains to the environments that you lived in. Well, uh, the thing about... It's weird. I just did a podcast called Losing It, and it was about losing something, right? And, I, and she wanted to talk about my mother who passed away when I was seven. So, um, she, my mother was 33 and she died in an alcohol related accident. They were on a, uh, Harley Davidson and they flipped off an overpass onto the floor, onto the highway below and got run over by cars. But her boyfriend at the time, my parents were separated. Her boyfriend lived, but she died. And it's a standard, you know, the standard sort of like mental health stories. Here's the, here's the, here's the timeline. My parents started dating when my mother was 16. My father was 17. She got pregnant. 
They got married. My dad joined the Navy. He was a medic, so he was lent to the Marines. They had six children in 10 years. I am the youngest. My mother was 26 when she had me. And she died when she was 30. My parents separated when I was four, so 1969. And my mother died in 72. And those last three years were literally feral. There were you was living no, with her at the time? We were all living with her at the time. Okay. She, um, she was a mess. You know, she was, first of all, a baby. <laughs> you know, the peace that I've made with my mother, you know, her, her memory and the fact that, that nobody in my family ever talked about her or to this day talks about her. It was literally the theory was that if you couldn't say something nice, don't say anything at all, which caused my older brothers to canonize her a little bit. And for my youngest brother and my sister, who are the youngest just above me, to just sort of blow her off, you know, and have to deal with her separately. But by the time I knew her, she was drunk all the time. She was violent and she was a mess. And there was no structure at all. It was my, one of my brothers once said about my oldest brother, there was a leadership vacuum with uh, our (laughs) oldest brother. He was 14. He could have stepped in. And I said, he took advantage of that leadership vacuum. And I believe got laid a lot (laughs) as a 14 year old. Were you you aware when this, at such a young age, oh, this is, she's drunk. This is an alcohol thing. This isn't how most moms act, or at least this isn't how moms are supposed to act. You never know anything about, you know, what's supposed to be, right? Your normal is whatever you're around. Yeah. Yeah. Your normal is your normal. So I will say that my sister, who's just two years, year and a half older than me, and my brother, who's three and a half years older than me, four years older, those two, they are the most alike in my family. They get along hit and miss because they are very different in addition to getting along very much. But they both had sort of the same response to my Dwar upbringing, which is my sister was the only nine-year-old in the world who I knew read the real estate. She was like, uh, I have got to get out of here. Uh, I'm going to need a shopping? house. She was shopping at nine. <laughs> this is 19, I think. I would have been, yeah, so it would have been 77. Okay. So there was in the grocery store, there were these newspaper real estate magazines, right? They were made out of newsprint, though. So your hands would get full of gray ink. Grit and ink, yeah. And I remember her, her hands just being vaguely dirty. as She's like, what do you think of this house? And I was like, so you're going to move away. And she's like, I'll take you. And uh, so <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, she was like, you're the only one who could come with me. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> was it a daydream or was it something that she thought she could pull off? She currently owns a house and a half. Okay. My brother Russ, on the other hand, saved every penny, every dime. He spent as little time as possible with my mother. And spent almost all of it with my dad's mother, his our grandmother, his grandmother, as he would like to say. And he, by the time he was 18, he had enough money to pay for college. He was the first kid to go to college in our family. And Darla, the second kid to go to college. And so by the time I was ready to go to college, I didn't want to. But it turns out they were both, you're going to college. 
and it turns out they are the boss of me. <laughs> yeah, just like just like you've always suspected. So it's really common for for kids in that situation to have a survival strategy, and and uh, it sounds like real estate listings, saving money. What that was your sibling was, strategy. What was yours? Mine was books. Mine was I literally crawled into fiction and have yet to come out. Quite honestly. It was very helpful when my stepmother came into our lives. She brought with her the structure of a small Austrian army. Uh, she was one person, but there were charts, there were graphs, there were, you know, French corners on the beds. You had to be home at certain times. For every minute you were late, you were grounded a day. Was this immediately after your mom died? That One year. One year almost to the day they got married. Because my dad had been living with my stepmother. And for a couple of years. And she didn't know that my dad had six kids. <laughs> Surprise. He didn't tell her that he had six kids. So when I wish I could go back in time and just see, because she told me this once and I was like, how did he tell you? And she was like, you know him. He went, I told you. <laughs> I have six kids. Terry, Philip, Scott, Russell, Darla, Jackie, six. And I'm getting them back. My wife, my ex-wife died. And not his ex-wife. They never divorced. And ah. and then Nancy Cation married him. Oh, my God. That is Nancy where, of Cation, course. Nancy Cation, the stepmother. The stepmother. Sympathy kind of goes by the wayside because you're like, your grown-up lady made a choice. And weirdly enough, she was 26. And oh. my dad was 35. Wait, so then after your mom died, it was a year until you moved in My stepmother. With- Okay, were you living with your dad, though, during that yeah, year? Yeah, my, my okay. dad, that year, I barely remember that year. That was a bad, that was a dumb year. I don't know what the <laughs> hell was with that year. But, because uh, when we were little, when my mother was very sick, you could say, my sister got us up for school. Everybody, she was the one, but she and I shared a bed in the dining room of a two-bedroom, three-bedroom apartment. The seven of us lived in this three-bedroom apartment when she died. My brother, Terry, it was like a two... I swear to God, where my brother Phil lived was a pantry, but he's like, no, it was a small bedroom. And I was like, hmm, I don't think so. But my mother had one room. My brother, Scott and Russ, shared another room. Darla and I shared a bed in the dining room. And my brother, Terry, was on the... Literally, the porch in Wisconsin. Oof. It wasn't enclosed. But by that time, he was getting laid a lot. And so he would just stay over at his girlfriend's house. And um, he was so 17. that's his coping mechanism. Yeah, his coping mechanism was women, for sure. And, and my brother, Phil, was tripping the lights fantastic. He was, uh, it was LSD. It was, and, and also books, like Tolkien and, and Gibson. And it was a lot of science fiction. My brother Scott had epilepsy, so he had the good drugs. Uh, yeah, he had feet of barb <laughs> and Valium. And he hung out with Terry a fair amount, so he got laid a fair amount as well. <laughs> my brother Russ had my grandmother and, and money. And the, the idea of being the golden child, right? Of doing everything right, you know? Oh, and of course, the Armenian church, Russ also went with... Uh, my grandmother to church. And then we all went to church when we, when we all got back. So my dad came back. So it's funny. I'm, I'm the youngest of four. Like he's, like I said, and my 
my brother, too older than me, went with drugs. My sister, the next oldest from me, uh, went with books and studying. It's it's like there's a catalog. And <laughs> there's only so many. There's you think about right. There's only so many coping mechanisms. Yeah. You know, Wait, what's it going to be? Yo-yos or juggling? So then I w- I went with like uh, theater and like performance and like being seen. You know, trying right. to be the, my, trying my to be the star. My sister went to music. Yeah. There my you sister go. Crawled into violin. She learned a half a dozen instruments. Yeah. In and then my father's a salesman, right? So, so all of us had had some interest in sales, and I think Terry and Scott and Phil probably all sold drugs. Russ and Darla were student council presidents, and Darla was like, "You should run for student council," and I was like, "I have the social skills of that rock, and I can't do it." And so I was the editor of the school newspaper. I was, and I said, "I'm going to be the power behind the throne." Watch it. And then we all sold a various amount of things. Like three of my brothers sold drugs. My brother Russ, I think, leveraged a lot of his political power in high school into some some grift, some graft. My sister barely did any. I don't think she did that at all. And then uh, I, I just sold student council candy bars for double the price. At every bar in South Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, the so, bars! That's it. That's a good play. That's sure. A... I was fifteen. What? 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 Factory worker off shift doesn't want to touch the elbow of a fifteen-year-old girl and give her a buck. Uh, <laughs> guess what, John? I was never killed. I was never raped. I was, it's, it's an amazing story of triumph. Yeah, because, and stupidity. Uh, because me. if you had been killed, you wouldn't be here doing the. It's, exactly. it's like when people say we never wore seatbelts and it was fine. I'm like, well, sure. Those of you who survived are, are here to talk about it. Right, right. Whatever I, whatever I tell this, I mean, I have like a dozen stories that all end, and then I wasn't killed. It doesn't make me the smart <laughs> hero of that story. No, no. It just means that something was looking out for me. <laughs> right, right. The I roulette wheel spun killed. your way that day for exactly. several days. Okay, so that's some of what Jackie grew up with. That's the foundation. And next, we're going to see how those experiences played out in the rest of her life. And you will listen and wonder how what you grew up with has shaped what happened later in your life. That's in just a moment. Back with comedian Jackie Cation, we know a little bit about how her mind was formed, how, to return to an earlier analogy, her car was built. Next, let's take that car for a spin. As you grow up, do you notice any effect that those early years had on you, both the instability and the the kind of can't depend on the people who are supposed to take care of you element? Like, do you see that manifest in yourself later? The weird thing about that was that I didn't, like, I think Darla and Phil had a harder time with our stepmother than I did. And because she came into our lives as an adult, she had responsibilities and she was going to do them. She didn't want to, but she had had taken the job on. And so she will, she was doing the job. I 
got to be a child for most of that early time. And they, they did not. So Right. Their childhood time, was already burned up and Yeah, they were the adults in my childhood. You know, my sister and my brother Phil. Most of my siblings went to my grandmother's house for dinners and lunches and food and stuff. My brother Phil made most of my food. And to this day I will not eat buttered noodles. But that's because he was twelve. And so all he, his all he, knew he how didn't to know how to make a lot of food. Oh my so God. he was he's a much better cook today though. He's very I, good. I would hope so. Yes. He's also sixty four years old. I think. <laughs> did it did it occur to you though? Like I mean, you often hear about this with anxiety and depression, that these are really good skills to have when you're in a messed up home life as a kid because you want the anxiety because like, like, uh, Neil Brennan told me like, because otherwise you might get smacked when you're not looking. So it pays to be anxious to always be kind of looking around as to where the threats are. And depression is, you can adopt it to stop feeling things because if you did feel the emotions that were really happening, you couldn't handle them. So you just shut down instinctively. Did you have right. any of that? The real, the real things the real coping skills is that I spent my entire childhood and most, and, and, and this is not good for my career, trying not to be trouble, trying to not get in the way, trying to get out of the way, trying not to be noticed. And I am in show business. Uh, that is not a positive experience. <laughs> it's probably one of the reasons why I, I don't have comedy, you know, specials and, and, and stuff like that, where I'm just sort of grinding it out. And I have fans and people like my stand-up, and it's, it's all well and good. But it is not superstardom. It is, it is not even, you know, Netflix special stardom. So, but it's because I spent most of my life trying not to be because if you were noticed, you were in the way. Mm, if you were in the way, you were a problem. There was hitting. There was shouting. There was, in Nancy's case, there was bored. Oh, I've got a task for you. And there was put you to work. You know, there was, you know, there were things that that I've avoided my entire life. And then there is... The anxiety that sort of you ever you could tell people who have been hit in different ways. They're sort of like dogs, right? People, you know, and and we're not that different from dogs, except for the dogs have one way of telling you that they're not happy, and that is to sort of snap at you. And they're just like, get off of me, or I will bite you. And uh <laughs> but that was to an earlier point. But what I'm talking about now is that. I got hit so much when I was a kid that when someone would threaten to hit me when I was later in life until I got therapy, I'd be like, I would literally get in their face as if to say, you think I've never been hit? Fuck you. I, I could take a punch, you know, and uh, which would usually make the other person back down. Was it your mom hitting you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My mom Anybody hit else? everybody. My brothers a little bit. But uh, it was mostly my mom, yeah. Not it's, your dad, uh, not your stepmom? No, no. Uh, my mom used to hit my dad. 
and um, was one of the reasons he had to call it. And uh, and my stepmother, my stepmother and my dad once spanked Darla and I when we were uh, I was seven, I was nine, and we had no idea of curfews or come home or tell anyone where you're going. So we had been told to come home, and we didn't. And so because you were we used to being got, feral. Yes, so we both got spanked, and I got Nancy, Darla got to my dad, and uh, and so they spanked us, and that was the end of it. And my brother Scott and my brother Terry hit me a couple of times, and and it was a big deal. It was a big deal, and uh, because they were uh, they were men, you know, like I was. And how old were you? I was. I think the last time Scott hit me. I think I was 11 or 12, which would have made him 18 or 19. An adult. And he punched me. And um, I threw my Kool-Aid at him. And then I ran. And I didn't have any shoes on. And it was October. And so uh, I ran over to my arch nemesis's house, Holly Habonic. Uh, and so I, I must have been 11, sixth grade, because we had become enemies in fifth grade. And But the thing is, is what this led to was that I dealt with things physically, you know? It's a it language you me, got taught. Yeah, it took me, it, it took me a long time. Hitting is, is not okay. The last time I put hands on somebody, and that's all I did, because I am now, because one of the most disappointing realizations of the last, oh, I would say 15 years, is that I'm the adult in this situation. It's a very disappointing realization. Uh, I am not happy that I have to be the grown-up. I have done, but I don't hit people. I haven't hit anybody in a very, very long time. What happened the time you put hands on someone? The last time I put hands on somebody was a guy who had cornered me at a show. And he was, they were two Trump supporters. And the woman was wearing a MAGA hat. And she was calling me fat and telling me how much she loved Trump and all this stuff. Whisper heckling in the front row. And he looked like Leonid Brezhnev. And they sat next to each other. And he was giant and silent. And she was whisper fucking with me my entire set. I couldn't deal with it. All I could do was do my time, right? I did not deal with it. I was scared because I thought that they might be armed because people go into places and shoot them up. Yeah, that's a thing. That's something, that's a thing here in the United States of America. And those right-wing nuts are the ones that are doing it. And so I did my time. I got off stage. All of my merch was set up. I had to go and stand next to my merch. So she cornered me, and she's wearing a hat like this one. It is also red, but this is my Wisconsin marching band hat. And uh, she, but she's this close. She's super close to me, backing me up, backing me up. Somebody said something to her. And by the way, security at the club did nothing until I put my hands on the guy. So they, they would not eject her. They would not make her stop threatening me. And so I back it up and I'm against the wall. Somebody says something to her. So she turns around. Brezhnev closes in on me. And he's still not saying anything. He's just looming and terrifying. And so I pushed him. At which point, when I pushed him, red card on Cation. So I put up my hands and I was like, go into the green room. Because then the security guy came over. 
And I was like, anytime in the last hour and a half, you could have diffused this situation. But he was also, you know, probably a 22-year-old black kid. So he's he doesn't want to confront Trump supporters either. And <laughs> right. he doesn't want, and they're all much, much older than him, right? Did this feel consistent with what you knew about hitting or physical confrontation from growing up, or did this feel like a different thing? This felt like how I've grown up, right? Like, sort of, it is the process of me growing up. When I was a kid, I was backhanded. I wasn't, like, what my mother did to me was she would hit me about the head. She pushed me off the bed once, and I chipped my tooth. That is fixed. But, um, like, the hitting that I got from her was just sort of pushing down and, and knocking me around kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't spanking. It wasn't structured at all. The same with, you know, with Terry and Scott is whenever they would hit me, it was just sort of a, a backhand or, you know, just a, you know, get off of me kind of thing or, you have to respect, you know, I remember when they were about 15 or 16, they would say, you have to respect me. And we're all, we all have this mouth. And mm -hmm. so even when I'm, you know, nine years old, I'm like, no, respect is earned. Respect is earned. At which point that would involve them hitting me again. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, the whole, the whole thing about my childhood, and I, I don't mean to, I mean, there's not, a lot of trauma left because of the work that I've done yeah. on it. When did you start going to therapy and start really addressing it? I, the thing about stand-up comedy is that stand-up comedy is a way to address it. it. It really is. It's a lot of comics. You'll see, you'll see early comics more and more now than ever before. Quite honestly, tell you, tell a story that they know is funny that they think is funnier than it is because they're the punchline is, is that they lived. Uh -huh. There was a very funny Didn't woman. Didn't get I killed saw. that day. <laughs> exactly. Right. So there was a young woman I saw who talked about her rape Jeez. and you're like, well, where is the hilarity there? Except for I, I'm not even, and it was a pretty new bit. It had about four punchlines. And it ended on a punchline, which is very, very helpful. But the one of the punchlines was, is so she was raped. She makes it back to her house. She calls the cops. And the cops come over and they take her statement. And they're like, well, sometimes women make bad decisions. And then they want to blame somebody on them. And she's like, I didn't buy tickets to Nickelback. This wasn't a bad decision. And then... The only two punchlines, and I wish I could remember her name, but the only two punchlines I remember was that one and the one at the end where she stripped off her clothes and threw them in the corner and never touched them for two weeks. And at the end of that two weeks, she looked at those clothes and she's like, I'm going to wash those clothes and I'm going to wear those clothes because that guy hurt me, but he doesn't get the only pair of pants that make my ass look good as well, which is a great line as well. And this is a way that people process trauma. I don't know if you've seen Dana Gould's act. Oh, sure. <laughs> Dana was the one who told me one time that, that stand-up is the perfect 
perfect thing for someone with depression or anxiety because you get to go on stage, you know what you're going to say, you know pretty much if you've been at it for a while how people are going to respond, and then you get to go back to a motel room and drink vodka alone. So everybody wins. (laughs) Right. You get to still be depressed. That's where... And he's not wrong, but it's, that's that's the kind of stuff that makes me sad, you know. What I like is a story. I don't a story of Greg Giraldo, the story of Mitch Hedberg. Those are super sad stories, and people look at those two guys and are like, "They were geniuses." That's how I want to go. Almost having my leg removed because of heroin, and you're like, or another person who was very very well respected would be George Carlin, who died of old age in his bed like an adult. So how were you, were you doing a form of therapy or at least a form of catharsis? Um, it was all cathartic, yeah. As, as a way of addressing your pain? Yeah, yeah. That's what stand-up was for the first probably, I would say, eight, yeah, 14 years. Wow. And when I was about 14 years, and I tried everything for my various kinds of, I was depressive. I was suicidal. I was all of these things and I was doing stand up, and it was processing a lot of the stuff that happened to me. Right. Cause that's how comics process things. That's how writers process things. I'm sure actors put all of their pain into those roles or whatever. Right. But I know that I also tried other things, right? Like I tried every hippy skippy. I was <laughs> macrobiotic for a year. Uh-huh. Except, uh, I was into crystals. I was into dream catchers and sage. And I'm still into all of that stuff. I am on board. You want to, you want to hook me up with some rice and some nori? I'm on, I'll eat it. <laughs> and uh, so, but it, I'll, I'll rattle bones at the moon. I'll, it was, I did, a series of enemas. I did, I did a, um, I had a structural alignment rolfing. I would do massages. I wow, would do. You did the circuit, didn't you? Yeah. I did every hippie skippy thing except try to stop drinking. Ah. It turns out, because I didn't want to be my mom, right? I didn't want to be my mom, but I was my mom. Well, you didn't want to be your mom, so you did these other things, but you couldn't let go of the drinking, so you the were booze, dragged which back was the into your mom. One thing that my mom did that did not help her life at all. And you were self-medicating. You're you're trying to kill the pain. You're trying to numb yourself up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I self-medicated with all of the all of the things: food, yeah. sex, booze, money, working too hard, all of it. And and was the was there still that lingering feeling or that, that tendency of being the youngest and being in a messed up house, like deferring to others, like not trying to be noisy because you didn't want to get smacked, like, you know, giving, giving somebody else a slot in a comedy club that you could have that taken for yourself. It, that genuinely doesn't go away. It's very disappointing. And I'm coming to a small realization here is one of the reasons, like Nancy Cation created a helper in me, right? Your stepmom. Yeah. My stepmom was the number one codependent person in my life, right? She was there for my father. She loved him so much. She was willing to tolerate. She never wanted children. She told us that regularly. And, uh, 
And she said, but eventually we will get through this and we will love each other and no one will know why. She also, my dad had had affairs and she told me a very funny story probably 10 years after, and probably four or five or six years after they got divorced. She was like, one of the last times I went to dinner with him, with your dad, was with him and her brother, Greg. And they were talking about his affairs. And my dad, he had had, my dad had had an affair for nine years. And my dad said, while he was out to dinner with Greg and Nancy, not nine years in a row. And that's funny. But that my brother, my uncle Greg almost punched him in the face. You know, you're just like, so Nancy, the most caretakery codependent human on the planet. Right. So what I still do to this day is I help other comics with their careers. Mm. It makes me slightly beloved. And I have to say that I still work on my own career and I don't, think I do it to the detriment of my own career. That's you know? good. Yeah. Because I think that there's a thing in stand-up where you get a gig and you never tell anybody who books that gig because you fear there's not enough gigs. And they're gonna there's only so many women could be booked at that gig. And I consciously made a decision you know, because I read the books too. You read the you read the self help books. Abundance, John. Abundance. <laughs> There's enough for everybody. And quite honestly, my career, while it isn't fancy, it is fancy to some people, and it is beautiful to some extent. It is very, very. Like I am not famous. I still get to, but I make a good living. And I also have a whole life. Here's what happened. I was still drinking. And a friend of mine was like, I have an amazing therapist. You might want to try therapy. And I was like, I don't know. And so. Everything's going so great. (laughs) Everything's going so great. So I go to this therapist who's willing to do slightly sliding fee scale. Ooh, okay. Cliffhanger. Jackie has a history of abuse in her childhood, some substance use issues in play in her adulthood, and now, at this point in her story, she has arrived in therapy to make some sense of it. You may have gathered that the first segment was about what happened, then there was a break, then the second segment, what we just heard, was about how that all played out later, and now we're going to find out how she moved ahead into a more enlightened future. But first, another short break. We have wasted this world. Our magic put a storm in the sky that has rendered the surface of our planet uninhabitable. But beneath the surface, well, that's another story entirely. In a city built leagues below the apocalypse, survivors of the storm forge paths through a strange new world. Some seek salvation for their homeland above. Others seek to chart the vast undersea expanse outside the city's walls. And others still seek, what else? Fortune and glory. Dive into the Ether Sea, the latest campaign from the Adventure Zone, every other Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I'm going first. It's me, Jackie Cation. Man, she's always this bossy. Uh, <laughs> hi. I'm Lori Kilmartin. Uh, we're a bunch of stand-up comics, and uh, we've been doing comedy like 60 years total with <laughs> both of us, but we look amazing. And, uh, working out. We drop every Monday on Max Fun, and it's called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it and learn about comedy and learn about anger management and all the things. And Jackie is married but childless, and I'm unmarried but childful. So together, we make <laughs> one complete woman. Is that just what that going to Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we try to make Kyle laugh just like that and say, oh, my God, every episode. It's a good job. Jackie and Lori Show, Mondays, only on Maximum Fun. Back with Jackie Cation. She's about to tell us what happened in therapy. The thing about therapists is that I lucked out in the fact that this woman was good. Yeah. And you because, connected with her. You, you and hit I connected it off. with her. Yes. And she was, she had very strict boundaries. She's like, you do not, we are not here for you to work on material. I don't want you to try to make me laugh. We're going to literally, we're going to hash out all of this stuff. And by the end of that, by the way, I had therapy with her for three years. We did process a lot of this stuff. I came out of it with a solo show. Thank you very much. And one of my, uh, and about 30 minutes of material. But the thing is, because I got to process a lot of this trauma, this drama from childhood. And, and sort of, and she helped me acknowledge that my parents were just, they're just people. And they were children, having children, not knowing how to do things. And as selfish and self-serving and egotistical as everyone is, and as I am myself, I still have to get up and make my bed and do my laundry and pay my bills and get make some money. And, and, and in that, like two years into the, into the therapy, she was like, we had recurringly talked about how much I drank and I got, and I got my DUI. I got my second DUI. And, uh, and she was like, seriously, you know, what's free 12 step programs. It costs you a buck if you want to. And I was like, nah. And then, and then I was court ordered to go to the 12 step programs. And, uh, so I went to the 12 step programs cause of court order and there's a lot there. There's a lot of just sort of sanity to be found in the textbooks of those 12-step programs. How far were into adulthood were you at this point? I was 33 okay. when I sobered up. My mother was 33 when she died. I was going to say, there's that recurring number again. I wanted to, to ask about, about your husband because... There was stuff that you've talked about on stage that, that surprised me, namely that until you met him, you had never really had a, a boyfriend of any kind. Right. There were no relationships. There were no relationships. And that started with him when you were 39? 39. 39. So what was up with that? Like why? I mean, not everybody could well, do their own thing and not everybody wants the same things, of course, but it seemed right. like you... And Something I didn't know happened. what I wanted. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted. And I didn't want, I never wanted to get married. And I never even understood what letting someone 
who liked me be nice to me, you know, with men, you know, with... Why with, not? Uh, why didn't you want anybody... Why didn't you understand well, men being nice? Was it your brothers or your dad? Well, to some extent, it, it of course, would be from the... I remember... Here's too much information, but it's a podcast, and that's what it's about. I lost my virginity uh, to a, another comic, uh, which uh, is gross, and uh, I don't recommend that. Anyway, uh, I was the youngest 19-year-old in the world. Yeah, so once I got that out of the way, I was just like, well, I don't really want to I, I want to do stand-up. That's all I wanted to do. It was like heroin to me. It was all I wanted to do was I didn't want to graduate from college. My brother and sister made me. What happened was, is I stopped drinking and I realized that my life was just stand up. And I had friends, good friends that lasted through sobriety, lasted through me getting sober. But I decided I was like, I would like a boyfriend. We don't have to hire the caterers. I would just like to, and I went into online dating with the attitude of, I am going to just be open. I'm going to be open to this. And I was always afraid to bring any men home because my brothers and my dad are super funny and they're super interesting and they're ball bustery. And I didn't want any sort of mocking. I was afraid for these men. And then I was also did not want to go out with anybody who couldn't stand up to them. So it was this two-pronged, circular catch-22 thing. Yeah, that's an impossible person that you're describing. Right. So when I decided to do online dating, I did it off and on for three years. Every three to six months, I'd have to take my thing down and go, oh my God, I'm exhausted emotionally. And so I met a pile of dudes, and eventually I met Andy, my husband, and we hit it off really well, and it came to the point where he asked me, he was like, I want to buy a house, and I want us to move in together. We bought this house, or he bought it, and he was like, I'd also like you to come meet my family, meet my dad and meet my, my cousins and everybody. And so I go and I meet him, and we spend a week and a half in Mississippi and Arkansas, and all of his cousins and all of his girl aunts and whatever are like, what are you two getting married? And so I was like, is that what we're doing? Will we get married? And so we come back to the house. We've moved in. And I don't know how to ask, how do we get married? Or what, are we going to get married? So I just say, Andy, you ever think about the future? And he said, like getting a 30-year mortgage with somebody? And I said, oh, <laughs> never mind. And then he had already planned to ask me to marry him. But I was like, well, I should probably introduce him to my family. So I take him to Minneapolis, where my brother Phil and my sister Darla, what I considered to be the easiest. They have the best social skills. I take him. I forget that Acme is my home club. And there's 50 dudes there that are like my brothers. Acme are, Comedy Club in Minneapolis. It's the big club in Minneapolis. Yeah. And they are jackasses. So he comes with me to meet Louis Lee, who owns the club, and Dave Mordahl, who is at the time doing a lot of stand-up and is now doing radio. So the first thing, and I'm, I'm nervous, because I know Andy, one of the greatest things about Andy Ashcraft, besides how he treats me, is that he is an adult man. But he is also a very silly, loving 
Like, he's a silly dude, makes video games for a living, but he's a grown-up human being. So the first thing Dave Mordahl said to Andy was, how's Jackie in the sack? And Lewis laughs. Dave laughs. Andy grabs a chair, straddles it, and goes, you guys really want to know? Let's do this. And they both fold like a house of cards. And I was like, oh, my God, I love him. I love him so much. So much. He is. He will be perfect. And then, so. I was thinking he was going to go with not as good as your mom. But that's a good one, too. <laughs> well, because he's not a comic. Yeah. So he's not yeah. going to be a dick. He's right. just gonna he's just gonna <laughs> shut him down like a grown up man, and yeah. uh, <laughs> pummel him with sincerity. See what they do. <laughs> and then, and but before we made this trip, he knew how freaked out I was about it because we were going to Acme, and then we were going to Milwaukee. Before we came home and we met Nancy and my dad, he knew that I was twitchy, and so he asked me to marry him for that. And then, so we got to go there, and he was like, "I somehow think that you." think that I'm going to meet your family and that we're going to break up. And I was like, they're a lot. I love them dearly, <laughs> but if you were going to meet them and run, <laughs> I would not. No one you. could blame me for doing yes. that. And he was like, I'm in. I'm in for the duration. We don't have to live right next to them, but I, I'd like them and I, and I think they're great. And so they freaking love him. <laughs> they love him with the power of the sun. They like him better than they like me. That's a good, that's Is a the joke. Good balance to, to, to strike. So it, it seems like you, you had this adventure of a childhood to put the most positive Yes. Unrealistic spin on it. Yes. Um, <laughs> Both of those. And then you've been you've been carrying that and you've been shaped by that. You've talked about it a lot on stage and in appearances. And it seems like you have a really good grip on what it did to you. So is the evolved form of Jackie, is the present day Jackie post-therapy, post-sobriety, uh, having done all this work on yourself, like, can you change the things that it did to you and change who you are? Or is it a matter of managing the damage that's already been done? <laughs> um, the biggest thing, of course, I mean, the, the, the best way to sort of look at it is you have to just accept it as what happened. If I were to go back and to change anything, I think my life would might be harder, you know? Why is that? I don't know. I don't know what you could in the in the idea of the butterfly effect, right? Like if I if my mother lived, my life would have been much different. It's a wonderful life kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I and I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it, but it's you play with the hand you're dealt. You cut off the people in your life that are, that remain painful. You're like, I can't, I can't say that you aren't my brother. You know, I can't say that you aren't my dad. I have to find the things in you that I love. And when I have lunch with you, <laughs> when I gather with you, I have to focus on those things. But that doesn't mean I have to hang out with you a lot. And it doesn't mean that you get to boss me. 
and continue to hurt me or, or hurt me at all, right? Because I'm a grown-up lady. Nobody gets to hit me anymore. That's Jackie Cation. Listen to her podcasts, The Jackie and Lori Show and Dork Forest. Check out her albums, buy tickets to her show, slather yourself in Jackie Cation. So that was Jackie's version of living a childhood, noticing its effects, and plotting a future. You can do the same because you have your own story. You can, and I think you should. It helps. Next time on Depression Mode, there are a lot of depictions of mental illness on TV and in movies. Many of them are very truthful and helpful, and we'll talk about those. And we'll talk about some that suck real bad. For a long time, the only time practically that you would see a psychiatrist on television was when they were talking about a, a dangerous criminal. There are so many episodes in that franchise where a, a person's just kind of senseless, vicious violence is associated with mental health problems of some kind. How to enjoy entertainment that makes you nod your head and not sigh in exasperation. If people support our show through a small donation, we continue to exist. If not, we won't. If you donate, you are one of the people making Depression Mode exist, and we thank you for that. If you haven't donated, we need you to. It's super easy. You can find a level that works for you. Go to MaximumFun.org join. And give our sponsors a shot. Use those discount codes they offer. That stuff is kept track of, and you're getting good stuff cheaper, and you're helping our show, which is neat. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends, and also when you hit subscribe, give us five stars, and write reviews. I ask this every week because it is just that important. It helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations going. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free and always available, text HOME to 741-741. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear more about, and just your thoughts on the show. We love it. We love hearing from you. Our electric mail address is depressmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. New shows being formed, listener contributions being sought and sent. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe, all one word. Hey, Credits listeners, the rudest state in America, according to the people who live there, is Rhode Island. 42% of residents say it's more rude than polite. Tops in the nation. Massachusetts just behind at 40%. The most polite state? Hawaii. Hawaii is known as the Aloha State. Rhode Island's official nickname is the Go-to-hell-you-stupid-bastard state. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out 
building wings, building wings, building wings. No one knows the reason, maybe there's no reason, I just keep believing. No one knows the answer, maybe there's no answer, I just keep on dancing. Hello, this is Diana in Wilmington, North Carolina. While I know that it can be hard, hang in there. You've got this. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.